the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Jason Williams. He's the, well, he's the executive director and co-founder of both Taxpayers Association of Oregon and OregonWatchdog.com on the resignation of Oregon's Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan. That's coming up uh, later this hour. And in our second hour, and part of this hour as well, Dr. Gregory Jantz on social media and depression, as well as rebuilding trust after betrayal. We're going to repeat that uh, conversation with Jason later in the program, so if you know somebody who needs to hear it, you can uh, let them know that's going to be our final segment in the second hour of today. Today's program as well. We're going to begin with uh, some of the day's headlines, but I should first acknowledge James Blend as our producer and Dave King as the engineer. Well, Oregon lawmakers have advanced a sweeping bill intended to protect abortion and gender affirming health care. That's the phrase that they uh, use for transgender people by boosting legal safeguards and expanding access and insurance coverage. Democratic representatives on Monday night passed, as expected, the bill along party lines in a House floor vote that stretched for roughly six hours after Republicans tried to stall it. Well, citing concerns about the wide-ranging scope of the bill, it addresses topics from minors' access to abortion to emergency contraception at university student health centers to insurance coverage for gender-affirming care procedures. Republicans tried to uh, various motions to send the bill back to a different policy committee or committees delay the vote until at least next month and postpone it indefinitely. Republican State Representative Lily Morgan was among those who spoke in favor of its postponement, saying it would give us the time to address some of the concerns brought up today and, if nothing else, have an honest discussion around them. Republicans said that they were frustrated that the bill, which has sparked a fervent debate, only received one public hearing. That was earlier this week. The emotionally charged hearing at the state capitol uh, in Salem lasted several hours with dozens of people testifying in person. Hundreds more submitted uh, written testimony, both for and against it. Democrats said the bill had been drafted over the past year, came out of a work group that was convened after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. This bill is the result of a year-long collaboration between dozens of lawmakers, stakeholders, including patients, providers, advocates, community groups, and legal experts. It protects, strengthens, and expands safe, equitable access to reproductive and gender-affirming care. I'm not sure abortion is ever safe, but that's the subject for another conversation. The bill would implement a wide-ranging series of measures, including shielding parents and providers from lawsuits originating in states where abortion and gender-affirming care are now restricted. It would also require public universities and community colleges with student health centers to provide emergency contraception and medication abortion. Additionally, it would expand insurance coverage for gender-affirming health care by barring insurers from defining as cosmetic procedures that are prescribed as medically necessary for treating gender dysphoria, among other things. Medically necessary. Well, the parts of the proposal 
that have proved to be the most contentious have to do with minors. Under the legislation, doctors would be allowed to provide an abortion to anyone regardless of age, and it would bar them in certain cases from disclosing that to parents. Democratic lawmakers have said such scenarios are rare, but critics said this could exclude parents from key aspects of their children's health care. Abortion remains legal at all stages of pregnancy in Oregon, and state law already bars health insurance companies from discriminating on the basis of gender identity. But Democrat lawmakers said the measure was needed to push back against the flurry of anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ plus measures in conservative legislatures, not in Oregon, but in legislatures not our own that are compelling people to travel to states like Oregon in search of such care. The bill now heads to the state Senate. It's led also by Democrats where it could be voted on as early as this week. And the governor, of course, will sign it. The executive director of Oregon Right to Life had this response. Today, we witnessed the pro-abortion majority's unswerving commitment to ramming through this radical bill with minimal public input. Despite unanswered questions in committee and well-reasoned objections from pro-life representatives during today's floor session, the majority advanced this dangerous bill forward. Again, House Bill 2002, it eliminates all age limits on access to abortion without parental consent. The bill would allow abortion providers to perform the procedure on minors of any age and would prohibit them from notifying parents unless the child provides explicit written permission. In a work session, Senator Ten Knope asked legislative counsel of House Bill 2002 would allow a 10-year-old to have an abortion without parental knowledge or consent. The Legislative Council confirmed that this was the case. House Bill 2002 is a bridge too far, even for Oregon. Anderson went on to say it's hard to comprehend how this kind of legislation is being defended by some in the legislature. Oregonians are united in opposition to House Bill 2002, now headed uh, to the other body. In the legislature, President Joe Biden is dispatching 1500 soldiers to the southern border to stem the surge of illegal immigrants that are expected to follow next Thursday's expiration of Title 42, a pandemic era public health measure that allows Border Patrol to immediately expel rather illegal migrants. The active duty army units will assist Border Patrol and will be armed, though they will only be permitted to use their weapons in self-defense. And we've learned that even self-defense is unacceptable to some. Following a a request by the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense agreed to provide a temporary increase of an additional 1,500 military personnel for 90 days to supplement the CBP efforts at the border, an unnamed U.S. official said in a statement provided to CNN. Well, these 1,500 military personnel will fill critical capacity gaps such as ground-based detection and monitoring, data entry and warehouse support, Until the Border Patrol agents can address these needs through contracted support, they will not be doing any law enforcement work. The 90-day deployment will find soldiers assuming administrative, transportation, and monitoring roles in an effort to free up Border Patrol personnel. Once the measure is approved by the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, the detachment will join 2,500 National Guardsmen already stationed and active on the border. Similar initi- initiatives rather have been implemented in the past by President George Bush in 2006, President Barack Obama 4 years later, and Donald Trump in 2018 to shore up the American border with Mexico. At least 2 million migrants have been intercepted at the US border, US Mexico border since Title 42 was enacted by then President Donald Trump at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll continue to work our way through some of the headlines. And coming up, a conversation with Jason Williams with the Taxpayer Association of Oregon and OregonWatchdog.com, which, by the way, is a great source for information on what's happening in the state. We're going to talk about the resignation of Oregon's Secretary of State announced earlier today, but effective later this month. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation with Jason Williams, Executive Director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon and OregonWatchdog.com. He's also co-founder of both. We'll talk about the resignation of Oregon's Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, announced earlier today. Well, the left's war on fossil fuels knows no bounds. Every line of attack will be pursued. The latest salvo came with the January listing of the Lesser Prairie Chicken, the Lesser Prairie Chicken, as a threatened or endangered species by the Biden administration's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. Now, the listing covers the entirety of the bird's habitat, which includes the southwest quarter of Kansas, as well as the panhandles of Texas and Oklahoma. Now, the reason that the administration moved forward with this listing has little to do with the prairie chicken itself. Rather, it has everything to do with the war on fossil fuels. On top of that, it offered the Biden administration an opportunity to attack cattle ranching as well. Now, the latest disfavored industry of the woke. Now, the listing is a direct attack on the economy of Kansas, which is home to over 70 percent of the lesser prairie chicken population. It will make it virtually impossible to drill any new oil wells, and it forces ranchers to file annual grazing management plans with a federally designated agency. As the administration's mortgage redistribution plan goes into effect, real estate industry leaders have signaled it's one more boot on our neck in the housing market. Manhattan broker Brian Lewis, a.k.a. America's agent, said, I think that putting people in a position to take a to take a place that they really can't make happen is a recipe for disaster. I think we've seen that disaster play out in the 80s. Well, under new rules from the federal housing finance agency set to take effect, well, May the 1st, yesterday, borrowers with lower credit ratings and less money for a down payment will qualify for better mortgage rates than they otherwise would have, while those with higher ratings will pay increased fees. A person's credit score is one of the most important indicators of credit worthiness for lenders, helping to determine if a prospective buyer, a borrower rather, will qualify for a loan and what interest rate will apply. The administration is urging Congress to raise the debt ceiling before June. Apparently, the president's interested again, but he's not going to meet with McCarthy, claiming that as early as the beginning of next month, the government will not be able to satisfy its financial obligations. In a letter addressed to Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, uh, that was obtained by NBC News. U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen pleaded her case for Congress to raise the debt ceiling. Now, the House has already passed legislation to do just that. But again, the president's not interested in talking The vast majority of Americans blame media for the country's increasing political divide, and Democrats are calling for the execution of an Indiana Republican who jokingly came out as a lesbian woman of color, tongue-in-cheek. Young Democrats are frustrated and disappointed that President Biden is running for re-election. And while Disney is embroiled in the woke culture wars and legal battles with Florida and its governor, another entertainment alternative is coming into its own. It's one that holds to the foundational values of faith that build America. Well, perhaps the values the Disney brand used to have. It's called the Logos Theater. And it's not just stage productions, but also film 
uh, both live action and animated, and a conservatory that is part of an umbrella organization, the Academy of the Arts, based in Taylor, South Carolina. Artistic director Nicole Stratton said, Lighthouse Faith Podcast, we're realizing God has raised us up for such a time as this. Well, the Biden, President Biden is intentionally penalizing those who are responsible and kept their credit in check. Katie Pavlich a new, says a new mortgage rule that the administration uh, is punishing Americans with good credit with in favor of financially irresponsible individuals implemented through the Federal Housing Agency has arrived. Federal Reserve officials are on track to increase interest rates again at their meeting this week while de- deliberating uh, whether they will um, that will be enough uh, to then pause the fastest rate raising cycle in 40 years. We're much closer to the end of the tightening uh, uh, journey that than the beginning, they say. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said April 20th. Uh, just how much closer the Fed is to the end game will be the focus of internal debate because officials think their communications around future policy actions can be significant, as significant as individual rate changes. Washington Examiner reports El Paso, Texas, declared a state of emergency on May 1st because a major pandemic era measure is scheduled to end Title 42, the public health policy that was set during the pandemic. Once the policy ends, border officials will follow the country's immigration laws created under Title 8, which includes deportation and a five year reentry ban without the expulsions Title 42 presented. Border towns have already been experiencing an influx of in of uh, in. Uh, immigrants and are facing a lack of staff and resources to handle the crisis properly. The city of Laredo likewise has declared a state of emergency on Sunday, which will last for seven days unless it's renewed by the city. It's expected that up to 10,000 illegal immigrants could cross um, a a day once um, Title 42 is no longer in effect. That's 10,000 a day. Corinne Jean-Pierre says when it comes to illegal migration, you have seen it come down by more than 90 percent. And that's because of the actions that this president has taken. I'm not sure which border she might be referring to. In uh, in other news, Democrats, clean air regulators are now targeting lawnmowers and leaf blowers. Your lawn may be the next climate change battleground and parks and playgrounds. Regulators and clean air advocates are increasingly eyeing the pollution emitted by small gasoline engines used to power lawnmowers and leaf blowers as they seek to blunt climate change. Environmentalists say using a commercial gas leaf blower for an hour produces emissions equal to driving from Denver to Los Angeles. And while many critics first attack the small engines for the noise they make, experts say these small two-stroke engines release shockingly large amounts of pollution. The Biden administration will finally end the federal vax mandate on May 12th. The administration will officially end Joe Biden's COVID vaccine mandate for any foreign traveler seeking to enter the U.S. With the pandemic long over, the hospitalizations from coronavirus infections down significantly across the country and globally. Maintaining the mandate would have been, well, for purely political motives. And we can't have that. Well, the reality is that the covid vaccines um, did not prevent transmission from the virus, which was the rationale for the mandates in the first place. So continuing to maintain them in the face of evidence to the contrary was obviously not a decision motivated by science that could be upheld. The U.S. is tracking another Chinese spy balloon. 
This one currently over the Pacific Ocean after having just floated across Hawaii. It appears to be headed toward Mexico. U.S. officials currently claim not to know what type of balloon it is, nor which country it belongs to, but they are somehow certain that it does not pose a threat. With China's spy balloon stunt earlier this year, the odds are that Beijing is behind this latest one as well. Apparently, the administration struggles with the concept of defending our national sovereignty, whether it be at the southern border or the airspace above. President Biden has finally passed a gas project. On Monday, the administration formally greenlighted a massive Alaskan natural gas pipeline project that had been originally granted approval by the Department of Energy back in 2020 under the previous administration. Now Alaska will be able to significantly boost natural gas exports, a boon for the last frontier. The Biden administration, which has repeatedly uh, bowed to the uh, demands of climate activists and environmentalists, this time rebuffed their objections. Alaskan Republican Senator Dan Sullivan praised the decision by observing that it will bring in good jobs to his state, further noting that it will uh, help our allies not only get off Russian oil and gas, but flex the muscle that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party are scared to uh, uh, scared to death of American energy dominance. That's even more true, he said, if we're sending it to Asia. Wasn't my idea. That's what Secretary of State Blinken says, uh, denying any role that he has had in the Hunter Biden Russian disinformation letter. Corrine Jean-Pierre is being roasted for claiming illegal immigration is down 90 percent in um, Reynosa, Mexico. Fifteen thousand Haitian immigrants are waiting for the new chaotic Biden policy to kick in. And Lori Lightfoot begs Texas to stop sending migrants to her sanctuary cities. Apparently, that's not an open invitation. Supreme Court opinions are being released at an historically slow pace with blockbusters to come. Ben Cardin won't uh, seek reelection, opening up a Maryland Senate seat. Ron DeSantis has expanded the Florida death penalty law, defying the U.S. Supreme Court. And Oklahoma's governor banned gender surgeries for minors while threatening providers with a felony charge. Hollywood writers have gone on strike after contract negotiations failed. That may not be a bad thing. On this day in history, 1519, Leonardo da Vinci dies in Clove, France at age 67. 1908, the original version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game with music by Albert Von Tilzer and lyrics by Jack Norworth is published in Von Tilzer's York Music Company. 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court in Buck v. Bell upholds 8 to 1, a Virginia law, allowing the forced sterilization of people to promote the health of the patient and the welfare of society, in quotes. 1941, General Mills begins shipping its new cereal, Cheerio, it's actually Cheery Oats, to six test markets. The cereal would later be named Renamed Cheerios. 1957, crime boss Frank Costello narrowly survives an attempt on his life in New York. The alleged gunman, Vincent the Chin Kajanti, uh, he uh, won't be acquitted, or rather would be acquitted at trial after Costello. He refused to identify him as the shooter. 1972, on this day, longtime FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover dies in Washington at age 77. 1982, the Weather Channel makes its debut. And finally, in 2018, the Boy Scouts of America announces that the group's flagship program would undergo a name change. After being known simply as the Boy Scouts, uh, Boy Scouts rather, for 108 years, the program would be Scouts BSA. The change came as girls were about to enter the ranks. Up next, Jason Williams, Taxpayer Association of America. 
on the uh, resignation of Oregon's Secretary of State. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may know by now, Oregon's Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan, has resigned effective May the 8th. Her announcement comes a day after she ended her consulting side job with a cannabis company. We're here to talk with us a bit about that and the coverage that you can find, I think, very helpful at OregonWatchdog.com is Jason Williams. He is the executive director and co-founder of Taxpayers Association of Oregon, as well as OregonWatchdog.com. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, it's great to be here. This This is huge news. This is like the second biggest state uh, executive in the state is resigning today. And so this is big news. I'm glad you're covering it. Well, it is big news. And I was wondering, is this unprecedented in the state of Oregon, where we've had a, a high ranking official of this level uh, resign? Well, well, we had uh, uh, Governor Kitzhaber. Well, there resign. was that. <laughs> yes, yes. His, you know, he made his girlfriend uh, uh, both a state employee and a private consultant uh, and gave her uh, his girlfriend an office within his office. Yeah. So he he resigned, and uh, yes, it's uh, sordid Oregon history. <laughs> yeah, just another notch on the uh, the belt of our yes, sordid history. Yes, yes. Well, let's begin at the beginning. This all started with Willamette Week running a story, an expose, if you will, uh, about a side job that the Oregon Secretary of State had. Now, I don't know if having a side job of any kind would have been uh, a no-no, but in this case, um, there really was a conflict of interest. Can you take us from the beginning to where how we got to where we are today? Yeah, interesting side job because she this was her third job. She is Secretary right. of State. Uh, she had a, a law firm, or excuse me, a law professor job at Willamette University, and then she took a job as a consultant for one of Oregon's biggest marijuana companies. But here's the kicker, and this they was like paying her ten thousand dollars a month, so she was being paid more as a consultant to one of Oregon's biggest pot businesses. And at the same time, she her office was doing an audit of the whole marijuana industry. And so it's like, that looks bad if you're being paid $10,000 a month by a group that you are uh, overseeing the industry uh, for an audit. So that's where some of this began to uh, look really, really bad. Um, she was performing the audit, and there, near when the audit was done, she said, oh, I better recruit myself. And then so she told the media that she, she backed out of the audit just so there'd be no appearance of impropriety, but she mm-hmm. only backed out like in the final weeks after the audit probably took a year or two to do. Um, and uh, then she said, well, I won't participate in the press conference on this audit. And, and here's the funny thing, uh, was that if you look at the audit – that the state secretary of state did. This is a government audit of the marijuana industry. It says we need to do better at maximizing our uh, marijuana business in Oregon, and we should make Oregon a national leader in pot sales. And we should we should help companies come up with more pot and more different types of pot candy and products. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't know about you, but I don't remember the state of Oregon saying, you know, hey, let's let's go do this for let's help promote charter schools or let's promote timber industry. It's for some reason the state audit singled out marijuana, uh, and it, it's also interesting that they 
that they're saying we ought to increase marijuana when we have uh, like a six-year supply, an oversupply of marijuana. It, it would take Oregonians six years to finish off what we already blood. have. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Clearly no conflict of interest here. Now, I should mention that in addition to the $10,000 per month, uh, she had a, a bonus of $30,000 if she helped the company obtain marijuana licenses outside of Oregon and New Mexico. We know that she spoke to Connecticut Lieutenant Governor about cannabis uh, mixing her public and private work. So this uh, this really is a conflict that uh, she... Suggests she didn't really recognize because she was trying to keep them in two very different baskets. Um, her resignation was accepted by the governor. Uh, Republicans really pressed for her reg- uh, resignation. And now Democrats are saying, yeah, this is in our best interest as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she crossed a lot of lines. Not the first time she's done that. Uh, she, her, one of her top I- I- directors for the elections office, this is another branch she ho- she holds, she hired a former director of the Democratic Party of Oregon. I was like, no, wait a minute. This is the elections director. This is like, you want the most independent... Nonpartisan, yeah. Most nonpartisan. And you actually placed a person um, who had served on a partisan position. I thought that was really bad. The person that she replaced uh, resigned because of a conflict with with the Secretary of State. So the elections division has its own little scandal that's that's been blowing up, uh, and now comes this audit division, where she she's coming out with an audit saying Oregonians need to create more pot. That's well, certainly uh, been high on my list. You know, Oregon really, with all the issues that we have facing us, that to me is really near the top. You just said, Georgie, <laughs> that's high on my list. I that was good. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was good. Yeah. So it's you know it's. Uh, Here's another example. The city of Portland gave $2 million of economic development fund just to marijuana shops. Mm. And as a result of all of this government money and, uh, the, and the market forces, the price is way low and it's undervalued, which is like, why is the government giving millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to marijuana shops and driving down the price of pot. This is not what I imagined 10 years ago Oregon would be doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are a lot of things Oregon's doing that I hadn't imagined (laughs) 10 years ago. That just happens to be one of them. Now, I know that the uh, the governor has called for uh, a review of her actions by the the ethics uh, committee, as as well as I can't think off the top of my head, the other group that's overseeing and reviewing what she has done. Is there a, a possibility of a more consequence to uh, this lapse in judgment, as she referred to it, uh, than just her resignation and uh, her leaving a job that paid her less than this consulting job uh, she resigned from earlier this week? Yeah, I mean, there, there are some ethic violations that, that could be there. I, I think she was helped by her leaving. And, uh, but, yeah, it's just uh, it, it looks bad. And, and this, we're only a month or two away from the uh, liquor scandal that we had where one of the uh, you know one of the liquor agent top liquor officials went to a liquor conference of liquor enforcement conference and got drunk and was hospitalized with alcohol poisoning and then there was they were they were hiding the really good liquor uh, and selling it to uh, only special people so we we've gone from a liquor scandal at the beginning of the year now we're at the spot scandal uh, time to get out the bingo cards to figure out what other scandals are awaiting Oregon next. 
My goodness. It, I always cringe when I'm reading the national headlines and Oregon shows up more often than <laughs> a, a state of our size uh, should. Now, the, uh, the governor is uh, appointed the deputy secretary, Cheryl Myers. He's going to oversee the agency on an interim basis, while Governor Kotek is going to uh, look for and appoint a new secretary of state. Any thoughts on this process and if we're likely to find uh, an appointee that's better than what we've already had, given the fact that, um, well, I don't even need to belabor the point. Your thoughts I, on what's I likely to follow? I worry about, I mean, Kotek, the governor, I mean, she is a person who is very liberal and she doesn't work well with others. Uh, I really worry about who she may get as a replacement. I, uh, and so that is, uh, just to tell you how bad our current governor is, when she was Speaker of the House, there was a member of her own party, a Democratic uh, lawmaker, who he left and he said, uh, you know, Kotek was running these secret meetings in the Capitol behind closed doors and a small group of people would decide everything. Okay, these are the bills we're going to pass. These, this is what we're going to do. And, uh, and it didn't matter that she had a large group of House Democrat lawmakers. Only a few of them made the decisions for the rest of the group and ultimately the whole legislature because they, they particularly had a, a, a supermajority. So that is how backroom deals our governor is, that even members of her own party elected lawmakers of her own party walked away from her saying this is this is a scandalous yeah yeah i would encourage our listeners to if they haven't already done so to check out oregonwatchdog.com you guys cover uh the headlines from the state of oregon you give us some context and uh, i really appreciate that that journalism and uh keeping us up to date in what's happening in the state and beyond uh, Jason, I so appreciate your work. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us, and I can hardly wait for the next episode in the ongoing saga, the drama unfolding in the state of Oregon. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Dr. Gregory Jans on social media and depression, as well as rebuilding trust after betrayal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's growing research that shows we as a society have a social media dilemma. Social media use has a dark side, including elevated risk of depression and anxiety. But avoiding negative outcomes is not the only reason to educate ourselves about the pitfalls and learn to avoid them. Preserving the benefits of responsible social media engagement is also a payoff worth pursuing. So how do we do all of that? Well, my next guest has written a book on the subject that will help us, social media and depression. Spending too much time interacting with our electronic devices can lead to negative mental health consequences that are similar to other forms of addictions. And so managing all of that is what we'll be talking about for the next couple of segments. Dr. Gregory Jantz is the founder of the Center, a place of hope in Edmonds, Washington. He was voted a top uh, 10 facility for depression treatment in the United States. Dr. Jantz pioneered whole person care in the 1980s and is a world-renowned expert on depression, anxiety, eating disorders, technology addiction, and abuse. Dr. Jantz is a best-selling author of 40 books and has appeared on CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, and CNN. And we're just delighted to have him with us today to talk about this very handy resource, social media and depression. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jans. Oh, good to be with you today. And social media is a problem. It is a problem. It's a wonderful tool, but it can also have a side that, that we don't fully understand. 
how do we uh, assess our own vulnerabilities to social media? Um, how do we know if we have a problem and how do we assess, um, you know, our relationship to it, healthy or unhealthy? Yes. And let me just qualify by saying I am, I'm on social media, but if we don't have boundaries with time and what we are viewing and engaging with, it's an easy setup. We know that people who spend more time uh, in social media who already are struggling with maybe some depression tendencies, we know that what happens is they will actually increase in their depression symptoms. So uh, we need to look at the social media world and, and why are we so deep into it? Are we using it as our definitive source of information? And, you know, we also need to look generationally, uh, the involvement, who's our age groups that are engaged, and what does this do, um, even to the developing brain? So those are some of the important questions we have to ask. Now, you share in the book some of the dangers posed by excessive or imbalanced use of social media. What are some of these excessive uses or uh, imbalanced use that can be harmful? Well, one of the things that we're seeing is uh, people are spending more time, if you will, in social media than in real relationships. They would rather isolate and engage in social media versus see a person in person. Uh, If you've ever had a a break or a lunch or a coffee with somebody and they're on, I call it a device, they're (laughs) on their device more than than they're talking to you, that's probably a problem Mm -hmm. because this can devalue relationships. And as we devalue the relationship because it's showing that something else has your attention. And so then we develop something that I call partial attention. You're only partially engaged with that person, which has an effect on really devaluing the importance of that relationship. What role did the pandemic and the isolation that it afforded, what role did that play on our growing dependence on social media in place of being able to come together and maybe forgetting how to, how to do that? Yes. Well, one of the things that we know is that during the intensity of the pandemic, during this time, the engagement, the isolation was high, so the engagement into online activities uh, really increased. And let me just add, some of the online activities that increased uh, were not healthy or not good. Uh, Pornography use went up. Uh, We know that um, people uh, began to use social media where there was division and there was, um, you know, kind of, almost an online hatred and anger. And so it hasn't always been good. And it's important to say, okay, what did this do to me? Um, If you already are struggling a little bit, maybe with um, self-esteem and you're going, and and then you compare yourself when you're online. It's a a way of comparing. And uh, we use it to judge what is reality, which is really not a good thing to do. And so the pandemic just escalated all the issues. Yeah. How can social media cause depression? Well, because we're comparing, because we go online and we're not engaged in real relationships. And one of the things that we know is the more that you're um, away from real relationships, the really what's happening online is there's a lowering of our self-esteem. It's the most fascinating thing to watch. Somebody who's just spent six hours online in social media um, 
tends to be irritable. They tend to be uh, not feeling good about themselves. You start to see more isolation. Uh, we know that there are some things online. Uh, we see this um, constantly that um, you know, there's too much um, sexual content, sexualization. Um, there's things that people bump into, not necessarily intentionally, but they begin and become engaged. So we've got to talk about this with our kids and really do a really a check-in with our own selves. How well are we doing? In your book, Social Media and Depression, do you see signs, and in your practice, I should say, do you see signs of addictions or narcissism from excessive social media use? Yes. Excessive social media use. And, you know, everybody, like any other addiction, um, you misjudge how much time you've spent online. And what that looks like is you ask a, let's say you ask a person who's struggling with alcohol, well, how much did you have to drink? They go, well, I just had one beer. What? And, And the reality is they just had six. Okay, that's the way social media, how long were you online? Oh, just just maybe a half hour, and it was really six hours. Mm-hmm. So is that fairly common, that people underestimate the impact, the time spent on social media? Yes. The amount of time spent in social media can um, rob us of relationships. It takes away emotional closeness from another person, and yet, the delusion of social media is we begin to believe that we have lots of friends, right? And we're looking for it as a place of of seeking approval. Yeah, yeah. Now, does use of social media or rather misuse of social media impact teens and uh, young people differently than it does adults? Is there a greater Um, danger? You know, I think with teens, there's the shaping of self self-identity. There is, uh, we have a generation where there's a lot of apathy. We have a generation where there's a lot of just um, uh, not hope for the future. And so we're seeing uh, kids engage in in really an alternative, at times, times, an alternative reality. You know, everything is virtual. Mm -hmm. If we look at during the pandemic, virtual learning failed. We had the highest academic failure on record. And so we can expect that that virtual world will have a similar impact on the real life of uh, individuals who immerse themselves in it, especially young people. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So and so this is not again, I'm going to say I'm not against the use of social media. Um I participate, but we really have to look at this and go, have strong boundaries, how much time we're being spent, and what are we spending our time on? Can we self-regulate? What happens is when it really becomes an addiction, and there is such thing as a digital addiction, we see it here at the center, a place of hope, Uh, people coming in, and we find uh, that they'll have symptoms like any other addiction. So digital addiction is real. Now, when you say similar uh, symptoms of other kinds of addictions, can you give an example? Because it's hard to imagine how that kind of addiction would would be similar to the kinds of substance abuse, for example, that one might be addicted to. Yes. Uh, When somebody comes to, now we're a facility where people come and stay. When somebody uh, comes to us, uh, for the first three days, um, they're not on any kind of screens. They check their cell phones and their tablets and everything. They check them in for the initial three days. 
many individuals will start to have what I'll call withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. It their heart rate goes up, they get sweaty palms, they get headaches, and it's a symptom of of addiction. Isn't that interesting? And they'll say, hey, I, I, I've got to have my phone back. I forgot to tell somebody something, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. Well, that is fascinating to consider that uh, that link. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break again. Talking with Dr. Greg Jantz, his latest uh, book is Social Media and Depression. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Gregory Jans. He is the author of Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. And the good news is you can be both in the digital age. Um, one of the things that we um, are very cons- uh, concerned about is the, the fact that um, overuse or misuse of social media, as you put it, digital media, uh, can be a mood-altering drug. It can be addictive. It can... Um, contribute to or even cause depression. Is that a fair characterization of the misuse of social media that can, on the other hand, uh, be very beneficial if we know how to manage it well? Well, yes, absolutely. Uh, I don't know that we could always say it causes depression, but if you're on the edge and you've struggled, it will increase your depression. And I haven't mentioned anxiety yet, but anxiety levels tend to increase the more you're involved in social media. Well, why is that? Well, we're comparing, there's things that are being said, um, we have an emotional reaction to a lot of the things. There are There is certainly is some things in social media that are very inappropriate uh, in many different ways, and we react to those. And what we tend to do is we spend more time in social media than what we ever realized, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and time passes and passes, and at the expense of other relationships. Now, what are what are some of the different types of cyberbullying? You've talked a lot about this uh, tendency uh, to compare ourselves with the images that aren't aren't always uh, an accurate image of someone else's life. But um, c- cyberbullying is another concern. Can you talk a little bit about that and the different types that are out there? Yes, there's cyberbullying where we, people will uh, obviously make online threats um, and cyberbullying. People will say and do things online or in social media that they wouldn't do in person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as though you're, you're, you're bolder and you can take on a different personality engaged when you're engaged in social media. Uh, so people will say and do things that in real life they wouldn't normally do. Well, in addition to pointing out the the challenges of managing social media well, you also offer strategies for healthy use of social media. So let's talk a little bit about that, because I think most of us want to be healthy and happy in the digital age, but don't necessarily know how to navigate that for ourselves or how to encourage young people to use it in a healthy way. So what are some of the strategies for healthy use of this medium? Well, I think what am I subscribing to? What am I engaged with? How am I using social media? Is it for some, it's their primary source of news and information. Is that the best way? Um, and am I able, the question to ask, am I able to um, really truthfully uh, modulate my time? So can I put on a timer and after 15 minutes really get off of social media or do I stay on? Am I walking around the house with my phone 
and I have family members talking to me and I'm not engaging with them or I'm not hearing what they're saying. So how much time does it really take? And as you look at that, you go, is this drawing me closer to my important relationships or is this an intimacy barrier? Mm. You also offer in the book, Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age, ways to assess um, one's vulnerabilities to social media use. I mean, we're all different. Some of us can handle more than others. I think there's some healthy boundaries that should apply to all of us. But how can we assess our own vulnerabilities? Well, one of the things is take a day of the week, maybe it's Sunday, and just do a fast, uh, detox, if you will, and see how well you do. And what social media do I find myself? It can be very tempting, uh, very tempting. Um, and so part of the assessment is where am I spending my time? What am I looking for? What am I hoping to see? So social media teases you. And do I have the personal discipline? Am I willing to be account- accountable? So those are some, a few of the things that we want to look at. You suggest uh, your readers choose best practices to minimize risks. What are some of those best practices? Well, I mentioned one. One is to be accountable. Yes. The other is set a, even set a timer. And can I, do I stop after a certain period of time? Um, other is how am I using it? Uh, am I using this? Uh, is, is it really beneficial? Am I, am I learning? Or is it just what I call doom scrolling? I'm engaged. I'm just doom scrolling. And everything I'm reading is negative. Everything I'm reading is causing me to have more anxiety. And so this is really, really important that you look at what am am I engaging in just negative information? And it's so easy, uh, so easy to do, especially uh, today when the uh, the Internet does embolden people to behave in ways they wouldn't in face to face uh, interaction. What do you say to parents who are concerned that their uh, sons or daughters or young people um, are immersed in social media, have lost the capacity to engage in um, social interaction, as many young people did, having been isolated for a period of time. How do you help to transition someone else, particularly a younger person, uh, that you recognize is in a in an unhealthy state? Well, I think one of the things is we always want to focus on loving and caring for the person and, and not... Come in, you know, people who feel harshly judged, people who feel, um, you know, uh, that you are trying to control them, they're going to rebel. And so one of the things is, first of all, we need to set a personal good example mm-hmm. of this. And, you know, what are we modeling to our family? Let's just start there. <laughs> you know, am I really, you know, in the evenings or in the home, am I always on my device? Or am I truly engaging in another person um, relationship? We, for example, one of the rules that we have is you don't pull out your phone during uh, dinner time or when you're around the table. You're fully present. Uh, so just having simple, uh, I call them boundaries, that helps really um, navigate this in the home front. W- what time, if you have kids, are your devices, um, you know, on? on the chargers, await, not in their bedrooms, etc. Yeah. Is there an age at which you suggest um, a young person be permitted to engage in social media? And I'm not talking about using computers for schoolwork or 
you know, the necessary interaction that's required through education, for example. But is there a point at which it's unhealthy for a, a very young person to be involved in social media? You know, uh, it, the age is, is funny on this, but I get really concerned when I see uh, that we're using social media, we're using devices to babysit kids who are five and six years old, you know, and I, you know, I, I usually say we want to wait as long as possible. And then there needs to be some real teaching around this, though this is new, I get it. But um, and kids learn things quickly. And, you know, they usually if something happens in the news, they know about it um, quickly. So this is important that we talk about um, good, good online or good digital hygiene. Digital hygiene. I like that. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a very useful, um, useful book, Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. Um, you, along with uh, Keith Wall, have provided a resource. I think a lot of parents and, for that matter, adults will find a handy. Is this a problem that you're seeing increase over time or are you optimistic that people are recognizing, especially coming out of the pandemic, uh, that we really need to reassess our relationship with uh, with the digital world? I think we've got to ongoingly keep an eye on this. Absolutely. So one of the things that's so important is um, to understand that we, if things will change over the time, there's always something new, there's always a new app, things change, but have a sense uh, of always keeping this as an engaged conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, the book is titled Social Media and Depression, How to Be Healthy and Happy in the Digital Age. It's published by Aspire. Thank you so much for this and so many of the other resources that you have made available to help us live a healthy and happy life, whatever our concern might be. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. You You too. Bye-bye. Again, Social Media and Depression, How to Have a... How to... Be healthy and happy in the digital age. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Say a best friend undermines you. A spouse is inf- um, engages in infidelity. A relative steals from your family. Betrayal strikes at the core of our capacity to trust. It crushes our belief that a person we love could hurt us. Well, in a little book called Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, Dr. Gregory Jans, he offers expert advice for people wondering, can this relationship be saved? Well, Dr. Jans takes you step by step through how to rebuild trust after betrayal. The same healing grace that knits broken bones and restores us to strength after illness is well able to reconcile wounded hearts and renew love for one another. Well, Dr. Gregory Jans is the founder of The Center, a place of hope in Edmonds, Washington. He was voted a top 10 facility for depression treatment in the United States. Dr. Jans pioneered whole person care in the 1980s and is a world-renowned expert on depression, anxiety, eating disorders, technology, addiction, and abuse. He is an innovator in the treatment of mental health, utilizing a variety of therapies, including nutrition, sleep therapy, spiritual counseling, and advanced DBT technology. Dr. Jans is a best-selling author of 40 books and a go-to media authority on mental and behavioral health afflictions, appearing on a number of uh, national networks. Well, today we have him right here on KPDQ to talk about his very helpful uh, little book, Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, Hope and Help for Broken Relationships. Dr. Jans, thanks so much for uh, joining us once again. 
Hey, it's good to hear your voice and to be with you today. It's, it's a hard topic. It is a hard topic, and yet it's one that will touch virtually all of our lives at one point or another. What led you to take up this topic at this time to help us kind of walk through what can be one of the most painful events in uh, the life of a relationship? Well, I think there is a lot of distrust out there. There's been a lot of hurt. And as you're right, most of us can really relate to this. We've all had a situation where maybe we thought we had a super trusting friend or a loved one, and something happened, and the word I'll use is traumatic. It was traumatic, and it was betrayal, and trust was broken. And betrayal is one of those emotions that throws you into shock. It's like, what? And and then you go from shock to anger to disbelief to feeling enraged, feeling depressed, and it, it's the whole range of emotions. You and said, it comes ahead. in different forms. Please, go on. No, I just, betrayal comes in different forms. Sometimes we think in terms of fidelity in a marriage, that's certainly betrayal, but it could be a broken trust in a relationship, maybe an employer. Um, or something happened in the workplace where there was betrayal. You suggest that betrayal is a form of trauma and that trauma is never compartmentalized, that it spills out in all directions and it affects us in ways that we may not even be fully aware. Exactly. Because it may teach us. Here's, you know, here's the... Georgine, the issue, it may teach us not to trust people. Mm-hmm. Nobody, I can't trust anybody, and therefore I won't. And we kind of have that position. And we end up being uh, handicapped in relationships. Uh, we don't allow ourselves to have close or intimate relationships anymore because I'm going to be betrayed. It happened to me before. And so we put up all these guards because we don't want to ever experience that pain again. Reconciliation, is that the ultimate goal when there has been betrayal? Uh, What do we seek at the end of the experience that somehow reconciles the the events that uh, have traumatized us? What's the goal? Well, let me say that reconciliation is not always possible, and it probably is not really the end goal, because uh, sometimes a person, maybe that you've been really hurt, but maybe they turn it and they blame you. I go, well, I wouldn't have done that. It was really your fault. You caused me to do that behavior. And so the tables got turned. And uh, so that's not reconciliation. And you just got re-victimized. So the goal is not to carry around that pain where it turns into resentment. It turns into embitterment. And where it, it's really self-destructive to you. That's the goal, to be free of that, which requires forgiveness. It does require forgiveness, which it seems to me is sort of a, a supernatural thing, given the depth of some levels of, of betrayal. You write about the aftershock of betrayal. What should we expect, kind of the fallout, as we're living through the, the fallout and are even contemplating what to do next? Well, as we live through it, and and let me just say, um, take a pause, allow the time, there's a grieving, there's a grieving of a loss of a relationship, 
and be careful. Our, our tendency is to do something that's self-destructive. Uh, turn to alcohol, turn to misuse of prescription drugs, escape in some form of unhealthy behavior because we want to feel a different way. That's one thing. And the other is really to understand I'm going to grow through this and with God's help, I'm going to grow stronger and I am not going to pick up that excess luggage of hurt and resentment and carry that into my future. Those are decisions. Sometimes we need help with that. It's so overwhelming. And it just we need help to figure out how to do that. And that's where an appropriate uh, counselor could step in. But we need to remember, wow, I am not going to let this be poison to my future. You refer to the foundations of healthy relationships as being trust and respect. When those are gone, what's the consequence? If I don't have trust in you, I will not have a close relationship. I will have suspicion. I will probably, if I don't have trust, I'm going to be on the blame side probably. And I don't have anything solid to stand on. If I have trust, I have the confidence to know that even, let's say, with a spouse, okay, uh, I'm going to have the courage to tell the truth because I know my spouse loves me. I don't have to have the fear of rejection. My spouse, if I made a mistake, I may, and maybe it hurts, but um, I have the strength of the relationship, and I am going to build on that by telling the truth. What are the essential ingredients for rebuilding trust after betrayal? That has to be one of the most difficult things to do because you presumably had trust before the betrayal and the possibility of of future disappointment always looms. Where do you start? Yeah, where do you start? Oh, and first of all, it can feel so overwhelming. I'm over. No, I really can't have um, a relationship. It just feels so overwhelming. Well, one is we do have to put some time, allow some time to pass, but we've got to keep ourselves growing, keep ourselves in a growth mindset, keep ourselves growing spiritually. Um, and as you trust your relationship with Christ, it's going to allow you to build into other people's lives. As you take, and I think sometimes they're baby steps, they're small risk, as you plug into a group, um, perhaps a, a, a group that could be appropriate um, for you, as you begin to re-socialize, okay? Because if we're hurt, we pull away from people. We tend to isolate and we tend to pull away. And I'm really saying, you know what? Okay, you're wounded and we need healing but I have to also re-engage and re-engage in relationships. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, talking with Dr. Greg Jans, his latest book, Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. And it's possible for that to be the case, hope and help for broken relationships. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. So stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Greg Jans, author of Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. We had a, a question from a caller who asked if you suspect a loved one, a spouse, for example, 
is involved in activity that is uh, betrayal, but is unwilling to acknowledge it or to admit it, what's the the right course to take? This can be very uh, challenging when we're not sure if we're the victim of betrayal, but we suspect. Yeah. And one of the things that happens is we develop a high suspicion. And I think one of the things then um, we need to be very careful because um, we want to make sure that we're not living in such a hyper anxiety state that we start to see things that are not there. That can happen too. But there comes a time where we need to voice and confront our concerns. And there's a time where you say, I'm noticing some things. Um, Can I talk to you about it? So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask for permission to talk about it. The next thing I'm going to do is be careful how I choose my words. Um, But I can believe that um, I'm concerned that I'm seeing some things and I need to talk to you about it. Can you tell me what's going on? Now, you probably noticed that the second question was not a yes or no question. My first question was, I'm asking permission to talk about something. The person will say yes. My second question is a question, can you please help me understand and tell me what is going on? And, and I, I'm going to pause and listen. And maybe, maybe somebody starts to confess something. I'm not going to interrupt them. I'm going to let them talk, and I'm going to continue asking questions. Be careful about why questions. Why or how could you ever do this? Um, Continue to ask questions um, that really uh, gather more information, like um, can you tell me anything more about this? And just first our goal is to listen, and sometimes there's denial, and sometimes we get truth in small, small teaspoons of truth. And the full truth doesn't come till later. Um, But make sure as well that you have somebody that you can talk to. Is it a counselor? Is it a pastor? But somebody that is in your court that also can give you feedback. Uh, We don't want to go this alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, how can a victim of betrayal ever know for sure if a betrayer has genuinely changed? There's always that. And you sort of referenced that in your answer to the uh, listener's question, but there can be that nagging doubt. How is it possible to, to know for sure that a betrayer has genuinely changed or is that the goal? Well, um, the betrayer who asks for forgiveness, number two will show remorse. And number three is willing to do whatever it takes to rebuild trust, including the time necessary. When I have sincere remorse, and I whatever it may be, maybe I know need to go and get some help. Uh, maybe I'm I need to be committed to some Christian counseling. Maybe I've got to uh, do some things that are going to rebuild trust over time. It's not instantly given. In fact, you write about um, healing as a process rather than an event. There is no magic pill. It's a process. That can be difficult, challenging, but it will take time. Absolutely. It will take time. And it will take um, time, and there will probably be bumps in the road. Because remember, betrayal, there's the initial going through everything and the initial shock, and then three months pass, and you think, I'm, I'm over it, and then those emotions hit you again. 
and you go, wow, where did that come from? Because uh, betrayal, there can be people, situations, but things that re-trigger, and really it's that post-traumatic stress that's being re-triggered. You refer to um, uh, the fact that betrayal never happens in a vacuum. What do you mean by that? And are you suggesting that the person who has been betrayed bears some responsibility? Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, there is usually more to the story, okay? It never excuses wrong behavior. Um, And we, a person who made it, let's say a person made a decision, they had an affair. That's always wrong. That's never, ever right. Um, Now, there may be some things that led up to that, but that was still a decision that person made and not a healthy or right decision. That in mind, we need to remember that um, there were some things that happened that led up to that betrayal. Unmet needs. Uh, Maybe something happened in the past to this person. Uh, There was a vulnerability. So it just doesn't happen instantly and all at once. How important are choosing good boundaries in uh, moving forward in a relationship? Very important. Boundaries are uh, part of the guardrails that keep us healthy. It's part of the guardrails that will keep us healthy. And what we're saying by that is we need to protect ourselves. And a boundary is not about punishing. It's, uh, a boundaries can be confusing. A boundaries is about uh, keeping a relationship clean. A boundary is about uh, not allowing things that are inappropriate to enter in. So keep, keep that in mind. And by the way, um, we always re- if we don't work through betrayal, it will lead us down a path of resentment, unforgiveness, and bitterness. It's not a good path to stay on. If we deal with, and we'll regret it, if we deal and work through the painful, painful process of betrayal, um, we will grow stronger and we will not regret it. We're talking about the book, Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, Hope and Help for Broken Relationships. And my guest is Dr. Gregory Jans. Um, he is uh, the author of some 40 books, host of a national radio program, regular contributor to Psychology Today, and much, much more. He's also the founder of The Center, A Place of Hope in Edmonds, Washington. What advice do you give about regaining emotional equilibrium, and what does that look like? Yeah, emotional, that's, that's getting rebalanced. That's getting renewed. That's getting reset, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a process. That's um, doing a checkpoint is anger, fear, and guilt, um, are those toxic emotions? Am I dealing with those appropriately? So, yes, we can do this. Um, those are the three deadly emotions that you have to look for when there's been betrayal. A lot of anger, rage, does it keep coming back? Uh, do I get full of anxiety and fear that I'm staying away from people in relationships? Uh, or am I carrying a lot of guilt that this whole thing was my problem. That's called false guilt. Our, our listeners um, who are in the midst of discovering a betrayal, who are uh, trying to recover from uh, and restore a relationship, as you mentioned earlier, not all situations warrant the rebuilding of trust, but in cases where the uh, the situation, the relationship warrants um, reconciliation, 
how can they find your book and help in to in their efforts to rebuild relationship? Well, um, should be the book should be available wherever your favorite books are. <laughs> so, and visit me at aplaceofhope.com. That's another way you can get a book, aplaceofhope.com. Well, I so appreciate your making resources like this available uh, to help people think through and ultimately walk through a situation that can be very painful and, as you point out, traumatizing, but are recoverable. And also how to apply wisdom in a situation to determine whether or not rebuilding trust is warranted because, as you point out, there are situations where that may not uh, be the case. Uh, Thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today about your latest on Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. Good to be with you today. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Again, the book is uh, available, um, and it's published by Aspire Press. It should be easily available, but you can also be in touch with uh, Dr. Jans for more information about the work that he is doing and other resources that might be helpful. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you may know by now, Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan has resigned effective May the 8th. Her announcement comes a day after she ended her consulting side job with a cannabis company. We're here to talk with us a bit about that and the coverage that you can find, I think, very helpful at OregonWatchdog.com is Jason Williams. He is the executive director and co-founder of Taxpayers Association of Oregon, as well as OregonWatchdog.com. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, it's great to be here. This This is huge news. This is like the second biggest state uh, executive in the state is resigning today. And so this is big news. I'm glad you're covering it. Well, it is big news. And I was wondering, is this unprecedented in the state of Oregon, where we've had a, a high ranking official of this level uh, resign? Well, well, we had uh, uh, Governor Kitzhaber. Well, there resigned. was that. <laughs> yes, yes. His, you know, he made his girlfriend uh, uh, both a state employee and a private consultant uh, and gave her uh, his girlfriend an office within his office. Yeah. So he he resigned, and uh, yes, it's uh, sorted Oregon history. <laughs> yeah, just another notch on the uh, the belt of our yes, sorted history. Yes, yes. Well, let's begin at the beginning. This all started with Willamette Week running a story, an expose, if you will, uh, about a side job that the Oregon Secretary of State has. Now, I don't know if having a side job of any kind would have been uh, a no-no, but in this case, um, there really was a conflict of interest. Can you take us from the beginning to where how we got to where we are today? Yeah, interesting side job because she this was her third job. She is Secretary right. of State. Uh, she had a, a law firm, or excuse me, a law professor job at Willamette University, and then she took a job as a consultant for one of Oregon's biggest marijuana companies. But here's the kicker, and this they was like paying her ten thousand dollars a month, so she was being paid more as a consultant to one of Oregon's biggest pot businesses. And at the same time, she her office was doing an audit of the whole marijuana industry. And so it's like, that looks bad if you're being paid $10,000 a month by a group that you are uh, overseeing the industry uh, for an audit. So that's where some of this began to uh, look really, really bad. Um, she was performing the audit, and there, near when the audit was done, she said, oh, I better recruit myself 
And then so she told the media that she she backed out of the audit just so there'd be no appearance of impropriety, but she mm-hmm. only backed out like in the final weeks after the audit probably took a year or two to do. Um, and uh, then she said, well, I won't participate in the press conference on this audit. And, and here's the funny thing, uh, was that if you look at the audit that the state Secretary of State did, this is a government audit of the marijuana industry, it says we need to do better at maximizing our uh, marijuana business in Oregon, and we should make Oregon a national leader in pot sales. And we should we should help companies come up with more pot and more different types of pot candy and products. <laughs> Which I don't know about you, but I don't remember the state of Oregon saying, you know, hey, let's let's go do this for let's help promote charter schools or let's promote timber industry. It's for some reason the state audit singled out marijuana, uh, and it, it's also interesting that they. That they're saying we ought to increase marijuana when we have uh, like a six-year supply, an oversupply of marijuana. It, it would take Oregonians six years to finish off what we the already blood. have. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> clearly no conflict of interest here. Now I should mention that in addition to the ten thousand dollars per month, uh, she had a, a bonus of thirty thousand dollars if she helped the company obtain marijuana licenses outside of Oregon and New Mexico. We know that she spoke to Connecticut Lieutenant Governor about cannabis, uh, mixing her public and private work. So this uh, this really is a conflict that uh, she suggests she didn't really recognize because she was trying to keep them in two very different baskets. Um, her resignation was accepted by the governor. Uh, Republicans really pressed for her reg- uh, resignation, and now Democrats are saying, yeah, this is in our best interest as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she crossed a lot of lines. Not the first time she's done that. Uh she, her, one of her top directors for the elections office, this is another branch she she holds, she hired a former director of the Democratic Party of Oregon. I was like, no, wait a minute. This is the elections director. This is like, you want the most independent. Nonpartisan, most, yeah. Most nonpartisan. And you actually placed a person um, who had served on a partisan position. I thought that was really bad. The person that she replaced uh, resigned because of a conflict with the, with the Secretary of State. So the Elections Division has its own little scandal that's that's been blowing up. Uh, and now comes this Audit Division, where she, she's coming out with an audit saying, Oregonians need to create more pot. That's certainly Uh, been high on my list. You know, Oregon, really, with all the issues that we have facing us, that, to me, is really near the top. You just said, Georgina, (laughs) that's high on my list. That was good. (laughs) That was Uh, good. That was good. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, uh, here's another example. The city of Portland gave $2 million of economic development fund just to marijuana shops. Mm. And as a result of all of this government money, and uh, the, the and the market forces, the price is way low and it's undervalued, which is like, why is the government giving millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars to marijuana shops and driving down the price of pot? This is not what I imagined 10 years ago Oregon would be doing. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are a lot of things Oregon's doing that I hadn't imagined <laughs> 10 years ago. That just happens to be one of them. Now, I know yeah. that the uh, the governor has called for uh, a review of her actions by the, the ethics uh, committee as as well as uh, Kent 
think off the top of my head, the other group that's overseeing and reviewing what she has done. Is there a, a possibility of a more consequence to uh, this lapse in judgment, as she referred to it, uh, than just her resignation and uh, her leaving a job that paid her less than this consulting job uh, she resigned from earlier this week? Yeah, I mean, there there's some ethic violations that, that could be there. I, I think she was helped by her leaving. And, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, it, it looks bad. And, and this, we're only a month or two away from the uh, liquor scandal that we had where one of the, uh, you know, one of the liquor agent, top liquor officials went to a liquor conference of liquor enforcement conference and got drunk and was hospitalized with alcohol poisoning. And then there was, they were, they were hiding the really good liquor, uh, and selling it to, uh, only special people. So we, we've gone from a liquor scandal at the beginning of the year, now we're at this pot scandal. Uh, time to get out the bingo cards to figure out what other scandals are waiting Oregon next. <laughs> My goodness. It, I always cringe when I'm reading the national headlines and Oregon shows up more often than <laughs> a, a state of our size uh, should. Now, the, uh, the governor is uh, appointed the deputy secretary, Cheryl Myers. She's going to oversee the agency on an interim basis while Governor Kotek is going to uh, look for and appoint a new Secretary of State. Any thoughts on this process and if we're likely to find uh, an appointee that's better than what we've already had, given the fact that, um, well, I don't even need to belabor the point. Your thoughts I, on what's I likely to follow? I worry about, I mean, Kotek, the governor, I mean, she is a person who is very liberal and she doesn't work well with others. Uh, I really worry about who she may get as a replacement. I, uh, And so that is... Uh, just to tell you how bad our current governor is, when she was Speaker of the House, there was a member of her own party, a Democratic uh, lawmaker, who he left, and he said, uh, you know, Kotek was running these secret meetings in the Capitol behind closed doors, and a small group of people would decide everything. Okay, these are the bills we're going to pass. These, this is what we're going to do. And, uh, and it didn't matter that she had a large group of House Democrat lawmakers, only a few of them made the decisions for the rest of the group and ultimately the whole legislature because they they particularly had a, a, a supermajority. So that is how backroom deals our governor is, that even members of her own party, elected lawmakers of her own party, walked away from her saying, this is this is a scandalous. Yeah, yeah. I would encourage our listeners to, if they haven't already done so, to check out OregonWatchdog.com. You guys cover uh, the headlines from the state of Oregon. You give us some context. And uh, I really appreciate that, that journalism and uh, keeping us up to date in what's happening in the state and beyond. Uh, Jason, I so appreciate your work. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. And I can hardly wait for the next episode in the ongoing saga, the drama unfolding in the state of Oregon. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Hey, we're out of time. Want to thank James Blend for producing, David King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.